Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 137, A Cheaper Buyback. Hi, I'm Neil. Over the past two months, volatility has returned to Wall Street. We have the S&P 500 now down for the year. There sure seems to be a massive risk-off trade underway. That's just another way of saying that many market participants want to reduce their exposure to this market. One way of doing that is you sell. And because prices are nothing more than the equilibrium between sellers and buyers, with all of that additional selling pressure, prices have to fall in order to match the sellers with the buyers. When we look at the Wall Street giants, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, and Microsoft, some of those companies have seen dramatic stock price declines in recent weeks. Apple and Amazon alone on a combined basis, have lost hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. In today's episode, I want to talk about some of this market volatility and some of my thoughts on what has been going on over the past couple of weeks. But instead of focusing just on why stock prices are down in recent weeks, I want to focus on how Apple management may approach this situation. Here we have a company with a massive share buyback program, an extreme amount of excess cash in the balance sheet, and superb free cash flow generation. When you combine those three items, what does that mean for Apple? Given all of this increased market volatility, given a what appears to be a risk-off trade, given what may be trade-in programs just going to sell, and really not really discriminating as to what is being sold. This introduces a lot of interesting and intriguing implications as to how Apple thinks about the market and how Apple can actually take advantage of the market. So that's going to be today's topic. Apple shares have never been immune from rough patches. This is not a stock that has consistently gone higher without skipping periods of weakness. In fact, you could say that about most stocks. Very few just simply go up. You're going to have periods of strength followed by periods of weakness. And one problem found with that reality is that a lot of people look at a company's stock price as a direct reflection of how the underlying company is actually doing, how the company is performing. And so when Apple shares are weak, you tend to have this uprising in Apple criticism, in Apple cynicism, where a lot of people look at a declining Apple stock price and say, well, that has to mean that something is wrong with the Apple machine. Management must be doing something wrong. There would be no other reason for why Apple stock is falling. Now, of course, I disagree with that assertion. A stock price is not a direct representation of how a company is actually doing. Instead of stock price, there's a reflection of how the marketplace thinks about a company's future. While surfing through Twitter over the long Thanksgiving weekend a couple weeks ago, I arrived at some Apple-related observations There was no shortage of reasons being passed around for why the company's stock price was seemingly in freefall. According to some people, no one is buying the newest iPhones because they're too expensive. Apple management must want to hide something really bad 
by no longer disclosing unit sales data. And of course, we have this issue that has been going on now for years. Apple's fortunes in China continue to sour. The company is one step away from essentially being banned from China. In recent months, as U.S. and China trade tensions continue to grow, you are even having some people talk about Apple needing to take its supply chain out of China and either bring it into a nearby country, try to bring it back to the U.S., something that I don't think is very likely to occur in the near term. In essence, when you combine all of these reasons together, and yes, most of them are pretty out there. They seem pretty exaggerated. There was a surge in fear, doubt, uncertainty, overreaction. People love to come up with reasons for why a particular stock or market index is up or down on any given day. If you turn on CNBC, every single day, they need to come up with a reason for why the market is doing what it's doing. It's comical. Now I know why a lot of people say they watch CNBC with the volume off. Why do people do this? Why do publications do this? They do it because of the human desire to add clarity to what is an inherently unknown process. There's a problem, though. Unfortunately, the only way to figure out why Apple's stock price dropped more than 25% would be to poll every market participant as to why he or she sold or bought shares. That's not feasible. And so instead, we are left with unknown. We aren't quite sure why Apple shares are down. We aren't quite sure why Amazon shares have been so weak. Or why Netflix shares have seen significant losses. Now, of course, we know that there are a few developments taking place here. There have been four major developments related to Apple. Apple provided slightly weaker than expected first quarter 2019 revenue guidance and cautious commentary. So you had management citing uncertainty around supply for some of the new products. You can look at Apple Watch, for example. Slow in demand in emerging markets, and Apple specifically called out India, Turkey, Brazil, and Russia, and foreign currency headwinds. So if you're an Apple analyst, and you were assuming that Apple would report a certain number during the holiday quarter and say it was pretty aggressive, there's a very good likelihood that Apple's guidance came below your estimate, came in weaker than expected. So that means Apple EPS estimates are being revised lower. Now, sure, every analyst is ultimately guided by different motivations. But when you look at analysts' EPS estimate cuts, most have cited the guidance and weaker demand for flagship iPhones. Those are the two things that analysts have been focused on when revising their numbers. Over the past month, Apple's fiscal year 2019 EPS estimates have been cut by 2%. 
That's a little bit misleading, though, because many analysts have yet to update their numbers. So that number will probably continue to increase over time. My fiscal year 2019 EPS estimate was cut by 7%. And I did that because I'm assuming a higher tax rate going forward and lower revenue attributed to a number of product categories. I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode for those who are interested in that. We have Apple announcing it would no longer provide unit sales data. It came as a shock to Wall Street. When you look at Wall Street as a collective body, they had relied on unit sales as a financial crutch. Take that away from them, they're not happy. Consensus has been negative on the move. Although, again, as we talked about in the last episode, management's decision makes sense. Unit sales have been telling us less about Apple business fundamentals over time. And then the fourth development is what we've been talking about over the past couple of minutes. The broader stock market has been in disarray. The four largest companies have seen nearly $800 billion of market cap wiped away in less than two months. Apple and Amazon saw more than $500 billion in market cap evaporate. Now, it's possible some market participants have been swayed by one of those preceding developments. However, others may have been guided by unrelated matters. Accordingly, the most accurate explanation for why Apple's shares have lost nearly $300 billion in market cap is because Apple's shares were down. Selling pressure often leads to additional selling pressure. Now, that answer probably isn't going to make me a great CNBC guest. Instead, people want answers. They want to know the specific reason that Apple shares are down 25%. Is it because iPhones are too expensive? Is it because of China? We don't know. The actual answer is Apple shares are down because they're down. Now, we've heard this song before. Prior to 2018, The most recent downturn in Apple shares occurred in 2015 and 2016. Over the course of a year, the stock traded down 30%, moved from an adjusted $124 per share to $87 per share. There was actually a two-month span within that window. It was between November 2015 to January 2016, in which shares fell nearly 20%. That stock price decline in 2015 and 16 was set within an environment of slowing iPhone sales. In November 2015, Apple provided weak first quarter 2016 revenue guidance. So when you take a look at the range, the implication was that iPhone unit sales growth would evaporate. And that shocked a lot of people. Because Apple had just reported 37% unit sales growth in fiscal year 2015. So you were going from 37% growth one year to flat or maybe even down the next year. What did Wall Street do? They turned their attention to second quarter 2016 guidance. 
They wanted to see if iPhone sales weakness would be temporary or a longer-term trend. I actually think a very similar thing is going to happen this time around. A lot of people, they're already moving beyond first quarter 2019. They're focused on that second quarter 2019 revenue guidance number. Well, back in 2016, when Apple did provide that second quarter 2016 guidance, it wasn't great. It implied even weaker iPhone sales. It also included another development. Apple was going to report an overall year-over-year decline in revenue. That made a lot of people concerned. Specifically, people were concerned about the long-term health of the iPhone business. So you had analysts fumbling over each other in a rush to cut estimates. Now again, it's tough to say any one of these developments led to Apple's shares falling. In reality, it was probably a number of reasons. But instead, that was the environment facing Apple's shares at the time. If we fast forward a few more months, three months to be exact, that's when Apple's shares bottomed. And they went on to see two years of gains totaling 150%. The company added $600 billion of market cap during that time period. Its forward PE multiple increased from less than 10 to 15. That's a pretty dramatic increase in the multiple. Apple actually went through an even steeper stock price decline in 2012 and 13. Shares fell 37% from an adjusted $69 per share to $44. Their circumstances around that decline were very different. Apple's gross margins were evaporating due to the iPad mini launch. You also had Apple's revenue growth that began to slow as iPad sales imploded. When it came to the iPhone, there were fears in the marketplace that Apple would lose at the hands of Android smartphone manufacturers, specifically Samsung. So during that era, the worry was primarily found with Apple's long-term gross margin picture. People were thinking it would deteriorate, resulting in less profit and cash flow going forward. When we look back at previous Apple stock price downturns, a few takeaways become apparent. The first is that there was some kind of expectations reset. Either gross margin projections were dialed back or the company's revenue growth projections were cut. Both changes had a negative impact on earnings expectations. The second takeaway had to do with negative sentiment. The broader narrative around Apple had turned remarkably negative. In 2012 and 13, it was about competition driving lower margins. In 2015 and 16, it was based on a slowing iPhone upgrade cycle. And the third takeaway was with the bottoming process. Apple's shares put in a trough once market commentators and analysts stopped trying to call a bottom. Instead, when everyone assumed the stock would keep falling, that's when shares kind of naturally put in a bottom. In essence, once people stopped paying attention to Apple and expectations had been reset, the shares were in a better position to begin outperforming. Given those three takeaways, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the most recent Apple stock price move is taking place during an earnings expectation reset. We're seeing that unfold. 
We have analysts cutting estimates due to Apple's revenue guidance and these fears of slowing iPhone sales. And similar to previous stock price downturns, we have Apple stock weakness leading to a rise in criticism facing the company. Some people are convinced that Apple is getting greedy by charging higher prices for iPhones, iPads, and Apple Watches. By the way, gross margin data, which Apple will break out between services and hardware for the first time, will shine much light on this issue. My expectation is that the margin data would show higher product prices are primarily to reflect the additional technology that's included in the latest flagships. But we will find out. We will look at the data and see what is really going on here. And then, of course, add in worries about slowing emerging markets growth, U.S.-China trade tensions, and the result is a toxic brew of Apple revenue growth concerns. This brings us to the share buyback. Instead of going on the PR offense to calm fears about business and product demand, Apple management is in a prime position to stay quiet and take advantage of this market volatility. Take advantage of Apple's share weakness. How do you do that? Apple can leverage its share buyback program to repurchase additional shares for the same amount of cash. Apple's share buyback program is the topic that receives the most questions from people. I get the most emails about buyback. A lot of people want to know everything from certain mechanics found with Apple's share buyback, sort of the the nuts and bolts of it, to what's the point of it, does it create value, exactly what is going on with buyback. And over the years, we have touched upon Apple's share buyback. And so I would point out two episodes in particular, episode 41 and episode 90. I'll include links to those two episodes in the show notes. So if you want to get a little bit more of a background regarding Apple's share buyback program, I would recommend listening to those two episodes. I don't want to necessarily go over the same information in this podcast episode, so I don't want to go over a lot of the details regarding share buyback. Instead, I want to keep our discussion focused on how Apple can leverage the share buyback program given market volatility. Apple began buying back shares at the end of 2012. So over the span of six years, Apple has spent $239 billion buying back 2.1 billion shares. What that means is that if you take a look at all of Apple's share repurchase activity, The company paid an average price of $115 per share. Now, some people may hear that and go, okay, well, Apple did really well. That means they have 2.1 billion shares that have now increased by $50 or $55 per share. It doesn't work like that. When Apple repurchases a share, It is retired. It is taken out of circulation. What that means is that Apple isn't holding on to all of these repurchased shares. It's not as if Apple now owns 30% of itself. And so when Apple repurchases a share, the number of shares outstanding declines. And so what that means is if you're an existing shareholder and you don't sell your share to Apple, you hold on to your share. 
that one share now entitles you to owning a larger piece of Apple's business. You now own a larger part of Apple's future cash flow streams. Now, of course, we're talking about billions of shares here. So if you have one share, the increase in ownership really isn't a whole lot. But if you're Berkshire Hathaway, you own 5% of Apple, and you don't do anything with your shares. You just simply sit on them. Well, over time, your 5%, it's going to start moving higher. It's going to be 5.5%. It's eventually going to be 6%, 6.5%. This point is usually raised by Warren Buffett when he talks about his Apple investment. Now, there's a lot more to buy back. You have to make sure that you're buying back the shares at appropriate valuation. Share buyback doesn't necessarily increase the worth of an Apple share. One way of thinking about this is if you have one Apple share, Apple's been buying back shares, well, okay, your one share now gives you a greater ownership of Apple. However, the company has been spending cash buying back shares, so the balance sheet is shrinking a little bit. So while you may own a larger piece of Apple, Apple's balance sheet is a little bit smaller. So your overall worth doesn't necessarily go up because of share buyback. That raises an obvious question. What's the point of doing all of this? Why doesn't Apple just sit on its cash? Or why doesn't Apple just take its cash and buy other companies or invest their organic growth? Well, first of all, they are doing that. We primarily are talking about Apple's access cash when we talk about Apple spending cash to buy back shares. But the point of buyback is to achieve an optimal capital structure. If you're a public company, you don't want to be sitting on excess cash. I know that sounds a little silly. You're actually complaining about having too much cash. But the problem is Wall Street investors, they don't look at you as being some kind of bank. They're not buying your stock in order for your investment expertise. Instead, they're buying your stock because they feel that you do a great job taking capital and turning that into free cash flow. And the price that they're willing to pay for your stock is based on their projections for how much free cash flow you're going to generate in the future and discounting that back to the present day. Over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article, Leveraging Apple Share Buyback, in Exhibit 1, I chart Apple shares outstanding over time. And you could very clearly see what the buyback has done to Apple's share count. The total number of shares is down 25% from the peak. So that's another way of saying Apple has repurchased 25% of itself over the past six years. So again, it's not that Apple owns 25% of itself. It's that Apple has removed 25% of the shares from circulation. When you break out Apple's buyback by quarter, it's easy to see management's decision to ramp its buyback pace following U.S. tax reform. Apple no longer has an access cash dilemma with cash stuck in foreign subsidiaries. In 2016 and 2017, Apple was spending anywhere between $6 billion and $11 billion per quarter on share buyback. That pace was nearly doubled recently to more like $20 billion per share of buyback, simply because Apple now has access to its entire cash hoard. As Apple's stock price increased, 
it took much more cash to repurchase the same number of shares. In essence, the share buyback became more expensive. So, for example, Apple repurchased 92 million shares via open market transactions last quarter. They spent $19 billion. This total ended up being a little more than double the number of shares Apple repurchased in the second quarter of 2016 when they repurchased 41 million via open market transactions. The thing is, Apple spent just $4 billion on those open market repurchases in the second quarter of 2016. This is another way of saying that given the rising stock price, Apple had to spend five times as much cash to buy back a little bit more than twice the number of shares. Apple paid an average of $210 per share worth its repurchase activity last quarter versus $98 in the second quarter of 2016. Now, if some of these numbers are a little bit confusing, I can make it even simpler. Let's assume you have a $10 share repurchase program and shares are trading at a dollar. Well, you can repurchase 10 shares. Let's assume shares move to $2, but your share purchase program is still $10. Well, now you can only repurchase five shares. So even though you're spending the same amount on buyback, given the higher share price, you're able to buy fewer shares. That is another way of saying the share repurchase program has become a little bit more expensive. Of course, the opposite would be true as well. If you still have $10 for share buyback, stock price is at $2, you can buy back five shares. If the share price declines to a dollar, you cannot buy 10 shares. So for the same amount of cash, a declining stock price means that you can now buy more shares. That's another way of saying that the share buyback has become cheaper. We could run through another example. Apple is currently spending $20 billion on buyback per quarter. If we assume Apple's shares trade near $180 and just stay near that point going forward, Apple will be able to buy back $330 million additional shares over the next two years versus if Apple's shares were trading at $230 plus. An additional 330 million shares. That amounts to buying back an additional 7% of the company in just two years. Now, this exercise assumes that Apple spends the same amount, 20 billion, per quarter. If Apple's shares decline in price and Apple spends less on buyback per quarter, the company obviously is not going to be able to buy back as many shares. If we run with another scenario of Apple shares trading down to $160 per share, management would be in a position to buy back an additional 9% of the company in two years versus if Apple shares were trading around $230 per share. That amounts to 30% more than what could be repurchased at $180. A simpler way of saying this is that for every $10 drop in Apple share price, management can repurchase an additional 1% of the company over two years, assuming Apple spends the same $20 billion per quarter on buyback. 
this produces an interesting dynamic as it is an Apple management's best interest from the perspective of the share buyback for Apple shares to decline in price. Why? They're able to buy back more shares. They're essentially able to get more bang for their buck. Up to now, the discussion has been pretty straightforward. In essence, if Apple share price increases, the company has to spend more money to buy the same number of shares. If the company doesn't want to continue spending more money on buyback and just wants to spend the same amount, well, in a scenario where the stock price is increasing, they are going to be able to repurchase fewer shares over time. And when the stock prices decline, you just simply reverse all of that. The one thing we've been missing in this discussion, which is incredibly important for share buyback, is a discussion about valuation. Share buyback is not created equal. For some companies, buying back shares is a mistake. It's nothing more than a ploy to distract shareholders from mismanagement. For other companies, share buyback is a very attractive way to return excess cash to shareholders. Well, how do you determine the difference between those two scenarios? You have to take a look at the business. Take a look at a company's balance sheet, the industry they're operating in. Take a look at how efficient they are utilizing capital. Take a look at their future cash flow streams, their valuation. All of those factors come into play to determine if management should be buying back shares or not. You can't just go around and say, well, every company should be buying back shares at whatever price they can get their hands on the shares. No. If Apple's free cash flow machine stops working, if it starts to hit some speed bumps, if business prospects don't look as bright anymore, that is going to impact, or that should impact, how Apple thinks about buyback. It will impact at what price Apple management is willing to repurchase its shares. So from Apple management's perspective, as long as Apple shares trade in an appropriate valuation, the buyback is an attractive way to return excess cash to shareholders. Apple is generating more than $50 billion for free cash flow per year, all of which can be returned to shareholders. Free cash flow is the cash left over after investing in the business and investing in organic growth opportunities. When we look at Apple's balance sheet, the company has about $125 billion of excess cash that can be returned to shareholders. So if we combine the excess cash with free cash flow generation, Apple is in a position to continue the current $20 billion of buyback per quarter for the foreseeable future, as long as the valuation makes sense. That last part is crucial. That last item decides, it's the determining factor between whether share buyback is a waste or share buyback is an attractive way of returning excess cash to shareholders. This brings us to the heart of this discussion. So we've talked about how Apple can actually take advantage of market dislocations with its buyback. We've also talked about how valuation matters. The key ingredient required for Apple to properly leverage its share buyback is maintaining the buyback pace even in the face of market volatility and dislocation.
So what that means is if every time Apple's share price falls and Apple management gets nervous or they think that this is going to bring up economic concerns and Apple needs to become a little bit more cautious with its cash and they dial back the buyback, in essence, the company will never be able to really leverage its share buyback. I don't think that's what Apple would do, though. Because I think Apple management has a significant advantage over the marketplace when it comes to thinking about valuation. Tim Cook and Johnny Ive are overseeing a design company tasked with coming up with tools for people. Given how Apple's a toolmaker, the market has had a very difficult time valuing the company's future cash flows. Revenue and profits are the result of a successful product strategy built on intense collaboration and focus. Once a product ships, the Apple machine keeps churning. This isn't a company that ships a finished product and then just forgets about it. Instead, year after year, update after update, they are trying to push that product forward. And very often, it is that year-over-year change that is very hard for competitors to match. A consequence of this product strategy is that at any given moment, if all you're doing is looking at the products Apple is currently selling, you're only getting a snapshot of the Apple machine. Most of Apple's long-term value, most of Apple's future cash flow stream, is found with the process used to come up with future products. The market is not in a good position to value this process. This is one reason why I don't agree with people who say Apple is following a services strategy or that Apple is a services company or that Apple is a hardware company. I don't agree with any of that. Apple is a tool maker. This is a company that over time, their product portfolio is going to look different. There are too many people out there who are taking a look at this product portfolio saying, well, okay, iPhone sales are declining or they're flat. Well, they need to chase revenue. Where does Apple find that revenue? Oh, they got to boost services. That's how they're doing it. That is looking at this way too near term. Instead, you have to be looking at this out years ahead. In my view, Apple's product portfolio is going to continuously change. It's going to continuously evolve. And the cornerstone of that change will be Apple coming up with new tools. These tools will contain hardware, software, services. During periods of severe market dislocation, Apple's market value can swing by hundreds of billions of dollars. When we look at Apple's enterprise value, it's currently less than $750 billion. That's down from $975 billion at the beginning of October. Management is in a good position to judge how effective the Apple machine is in coming up with new ideas for future growth. So by capitalizing on the market's worry, anxiety, and unease, Apple management can leverage the share buyback program to buy additional shares when Apple shares come under pressure. So just because Apple shares are down, and most market pundits and commentators think that the Apple machine is breaking down, 
Apple management's in a pretty good position to take a look around, say, we still have confidence in ourselves. You know what? We're going to take advantage of this market dislocation. We're going to spend the same amount on buyback. And given the lower share price, we're able to buy back more shares. Over time, even if the share price doesn't really do anything, we're just simply going to be buying back more shares. Existing shareholders will be able to have a larger say, a larger ownership share in the company. We think that is a good way of removing excess cash from the balance sheet and returning it to shareholders. If during a period of market dislocation, Apple management takes a look around and actually says, you know what? We do have some concerns with the Apple machine. We do have some concerns with our ability to come up with new compelling tools in the future. They have the option of cutting back its share buyback pace. It's not that they have to spend excess cash on share buyback. If they think Apple valuation is actually declining, they can reduce the pace of buyback. Apple has that optionality. The key is that that optionality increases in value during market dislocations. For many companies, they just aren't in the same kind of position as Apple. Either their balance sheets are way too levered, and during an economic downturn, things will look really ugly. In that case, they are probably not going to be spending cash on buyback. Or they simply have a business that is very dependent on outside forces. They don't have as much confidence in their ability to continue generating cash flow in the future. When you take into account Apple's design-led culture and the company's mission to come up with new tools for people and combine that with the magnitude of the company's buyback program, free cash flow generation, and access cash position, no other public company is in as good of a position as Apple to benefit from stock market turmoil. Management can use periods of market dislocation to double down on the Apple machine. That's going to do it for today's episode. As I mentioned towards the beginning of the episode, I recently cut my fiscal year 2019 EPS estimates for Apple. If that is something that you're interested in, I do make my Apple earnings model available to above Avalon members. This is a working model, so that means that you can go in, change the assumptions to your liking, and see how it impacts Apple's income statement, how it will impact Apple revenue, margins, and EPS. Going forward, whenever I adjust my earnings estimates for Apple, that is when I make my model available to above Avalon members. So access to my earnings model is one benefit associated with membership. The cornerstone of membership remains the daily updates. These are daily emails that cover everything that I think matters in the world of Apple. Another way of thinking of the daily updates is that it's a continuous discussion about Apple that I have throughout the week. For example, one topic that we continue to investigate very closely is this issue about questionable iPhone demand. There's been a lot of noise regarding this topic. There's a lot of reports. Some are more accurate than others. My strategy for tackling this topic in the daily updates is we go over what I think matters. We discuss the relevant data points. We're always bringing it back to what I think it means in terms of Apple revenue. What is actually changing 
with the iPhone story, what could be causing weaker demand, if there is even weaker demand. We also started to talk about Apple's strategy in 2019. We're starting to see some signs of what may be taking place within the iPhone business. Instead of just blaming high pricing, I think there's a lot more to this story. Each daily update is about 2,000 words and covers two to three stories. So if you're interested in taking a look at the different headlines that are included in the daily updates, just head on over to aboveavalon.com and then go to the daily updates page. An archive is available so you can go and access daily updates that were previously sent to Above Avalon members. If you enjoy the analysis found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, which are accessible to everyone, I think you would find quite a bit of value in becoming an Above Avalon member. For more information on membership and to become a member, head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. On that page, you will also see the list of member privileges and benefits. One thing that I didn't mention is I recently launched my exclusive reports about Apple. These are in-depth examinations into Apple's business strategy. Each report covers one topic, and a new report is published each quarter. The first report is on leadership. The actual title is Apple's Leadership Structure under Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. It's a 5,000-word report that really just takes a look at everything there is to know about Apple's leadership structure. Again, all of that is available to Above Avalon members. Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are already an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. One final announcement with the holiday season right around the corner, Above Avalon gifts are up and running. This is the one time each year when various options are available to gift an Above Avalon membership. So if you may have had a membership on your wish list, this is the perfect time to maybe send a hint, send a link to someone, and they can gift you a membership for the new year. Just head on over to Above Avalon. On the left, you could see the gifts page or you can just go to aboveavalon.com forward slash gifts. All of the forms are fully automated and all of this will be available right up until the holidays. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later.